Welcome back to the TV podcast. I am once again Monty Ashley, and I am once again joined by Brian Hamilton. We are talking about Game of Thrones Season 4, Episode 6, The Laws of Gods and Men. Those laws of gods and men, honestly, they've really taken Westeros to a strange place, and I'm excited to uh, discuss that with you tonight, Monty. To be fair, there were also laws of women involved, and I don't know why they didn't get into the title. Well, you know how it is. They're all misogynists out there in, uh, in Westeros. I guess that's true. So we started with Stannis and Davos crossing the Narrow Sea, which is exciting to me because I was wondering if anyone was ever going to cross the Narrow Sea. Apparently Daenerys can't. Yeah, well, she could. She just chooses not to. We'll get to that later. Right. So Stannis and Davos went across the Narrow Sea to Bravos and applied for a loan. So their raven, I guess, didn't really get answered, but here they are actually making their way out to the Iron Bank of Bravos. The first thing I noticed this episode, they, they added that whole new location to the title sequence. That was a pretty big surprise. Yeah. Well, I'm always happy to see things get added to the title sequence. I've, I've said this before, I do wish they would take Winterfell out because no one's at Winterfell. Winterfell isn't at Winterfell. There's basically no Winterfell. It's just smoke, even in the uh, even in the titles. Yeah, but why why even stop there? I guess it's to represent the Starks, but there are not that many Starks either. The only Starks are all you know mixed up with you know wildlings or more Lannisters or Littlefinger in Sansa's case. Yeah, we didn't even have any Starks in this episode. The closest we got was Theon, and he's not really Theon anymore, and he wasn't really a Stark. I really want to talk to you about that uh, once maybe the episode wraps up. We can talk about how oddly this was structured. Um, yeah. But then, uh, you know, we have this really cool bit added to the title sequence where we have, you know, this giant man. And that reminded me a lot of the bit in Lord of the Rings where they uh, pass those two statues. But what do you think of this scene where they uh, apply for a loan? I question the Iron Bank's processes. Like, they seem to have loaned a lot of money to Tywin and all it takes for them to change their minds is somebody coming by and giving a rousing speech about how Tywin is old and doesn't have any useful heirs. They should know that by now. They talk a lot about how they prefer the stories numbers tell because they're a lot more, you know, based in fact and a lot less based in something like vigor or, I don't know, <laughs> uh, alliances, things like that. It's real numbers, the fact. And you know, they come in and they give this big rousing speech, and I don't think that it was fairly obvious they were on uh, Tywin's side, especially because they bail them out of so much, as Tywin explained a few episodes ago. Yeah, they're heavily invested in Tywin, but that's a sunk cost at this point. There's really nothing else they can do about it. Well, maybe it's me, but if I were the Iron Bank, I would just not be investing in that continent at all. Just... You guys figure it out yourselves. Once you are a stable platform, then we will decide who to loan money to. Yeah, but do you think that's going to be stable for a while? Given all the stuff that happens later in King's Landing for, you know, half <laughs> the episode, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much stability in the capital for quite a while. I do not think it's very stable in, <laughs> in Westeros, and that's why I would not be donating money or loaning money over there. <laughs> there's, there's no shame in just holding on to your money until you have a good investment to make. I mentioned this last week. I like how they take, you know, normal real world establishments like the bank and the court and they, you know, twist them to make them work for the strange world George R. R. Martin created. And I think that this scene's a really great, uh, really great 
depiction of that, the way that they made everything so strange, but yet felt so right in that it fits in Westeros, but it's still something we can identify with. Yeah. And of course, they were able to segue directly from the riveting loan application process right to all the breasts in the world. (laughs) Just so people remember what show they're watching. Exactly. You know, they have to remind them that they're on HBO, that they can get away with as much toplessness as they want. Yeah, although I was super happy to see that pirate again. I really enjoyed his previous appearances, and uh, I look forward to him being entertaining and skeptical. I forgot that he was in the show until he, you know, came back. There really aren't that many characters like him in the show, and I really think that, you know, it was, I was glad to see him again, but it felt a little bit strange thinking, oh, well, you're back, I guess. Uh, I thought it was interesting they spent the first, you know, 20 minutes of the show with comparatively minor characters. Well, they had to fit him in somehow. Mm, I'm glad they did. That was a really good scene. <laughs> yeah. And we moved from that to Theon's sister, Yara, who everybody forgot about, I'm guessing, showing up to save Theon. And it does not go well. It really doesn't go well, but I think that was one of the best scenes, certainly this season, but I think it's one of the best sequences of the entire show. That really great, rousing editing that they did for her introduction, uh, juxtaposing it with Ramsay and his, I guess, whore, they really <laughs> did a great job making that something you know, huge and powerful and entertaining. Was she in the season at all compar- like before this? In this season? No. I didn't think so. You know, she came out of nowhere. Well, she came out of last season. Well, out last season, yeah, but for this season. <laughs> um, my favorite thing in this section was that Ramsey rushes in shirtless and covered in blood. There's no explanation for it, <laughs> but the character has been established well enough that you just shrug and say, okay, so Ramsey's off screen doing something that involves being shirtless and getting covered in blood. It's totally true to his character. He would have gotten along well with Joffrey had he still been alive. Oh, yeah. Well... I think Ramsey's more of a sadist than Joffrey. Joffrey was, Joffrey's sadism was immature, unfocused. It would not occur to him to take an enemy and completely break him the way Theon has been completely broken. I feel like this episode is really what drove home the fact that he is completely broken. I was amazed when he said, no, no, I am Reek. I'm not Theon. Go away. I don't want to leave. That was incredible. The first thing he said was, it's a trick, which from his point of view, it probably could have been a trick. But yeah, after that one outburst, he accepted it was real, but I'm not Theon, I don't want to go. And Yara, I think correctly, decided that her brother's dead. There's no benefit to spending any effort breaking this kid out. Especially because, you know, they're so temperamental about what really makes him part of the family. You know, remember back to, I guess it was last season or maybe the season before when uh, he goes back home to the Iron Islands and there's that wonderful confrontation between him and his father and his sister, I guess. They uh, they talk a lot about what it meant to be a Greyjoy and all the time he spent with the Starks and all the time that he spent over there away from them. I love the fact that, you know, that kind of came back in a small way tonight when they made him, you know, dead to them, but also dead as a person. Yeah, the Greyjoys are super hardcore. They looked down on Theon for having something he purchased because he didn't pay the iron price, which is stealing absolutely everything you own. Mm-hmm, exactly. Moving on to Judge Khaleesi. Apparently her dragons are getting really big and are out eating goats. When we were first introduced to the goat herder, that 
was something that I didn't expect at all. And I don't think anybody did. There, were, It's one of those moments where you think, am, am I on the right show? Is this the right channel? And, you know, when the dragons come out, that was a wonderful, wonderful moment because you think, wow, they're really untamed and they're really, you know, something out there that's a force to be reckoned with. There's that quote floating around everywhere that I think was already said in the show, you know, dragons cannot be tamed, not even by their mother. Like, oh, okay, well, here they are. She can't tame them. And she's having troubles at home as it is with uh, all of these things going on, you know, that she has to oversee in her little courtroom. Yeah, I was bothered by the goat scene a little because he was keeping goats on a green hill. And I think that's the first greenery we've seen on the eastern continent. Every time else, it's always been desolate desert with maybe some tumbleweeds. Especially because it's marine and, you know, we haven't seen anything green in marine at all. It's all been desert, like you said. Yeah, I guess maybe we've seen green in the opening map. I should be paying attention to the parts that aren't in cities, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. In the opening map, I'm too busy, you know, singing along with the theme song to pay attention to if there's <laughs> any green. But, yeah. you know, maybe there's like a little ledge off to the side of Marine that we just can't see and that we haven't seen yet. Or maybe they just ran out of shooting locations out in the desert. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think of Daenerys as a judge? Personally, I thought that she was a little nice to everybody. We only saw her with two people and she gave both of them everything they wanted. And a lot more in terms of the uh, the goat herder. But she's always been that way. She's always been someone that gives a lot more than she really should or can in some cases. She's always been someone to liberate the slaves and someone that wants to spare the people. Like, remember back in the first season, there's that moment where Khal Drogo's men want to rape and pillage a village. And she says no. You know, she's always been that kind of person. Yeah, but... I don't know. I, I just feel that if you're going to crucify 162 people, that's a decision you have to stand by. It really is. I mean, we were talking last week about whether or not there was literal crucifixion involved. It sounds like there was, you know, in terms yeah. of the um, well, in terms of Daenerys, we know that there was. But the slave owners apparently crucified children, according to uh, Daenerys. Quite literally, which I think is yeah. a little ridiculous that they would do that. But I'm glad that she, you know, kind of not spared them, but at least allowed the son to have a good uh, burial for his father. Yeah, I mean, it's nice of her, I guess. Uh, I'm, I'm no judge. I'm no queen. <laughs> I don't know. And then after this scene, she had, what, 212 more? Yes. My God, I could not be able to do that. And probably even more once that goat herder gets outside, starts yelling about how everything worked out. <laughs> He's going to make a killing with all that extra gold. If, assuming they have some kind of economy. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like there is. If Westeros is that bad off, I mean, how good can Marine be? Well, I mean, if Marine was three quarters slaves and now it's zero slaves, I'm assuming that does something to the cash flow, but I don't know what. I mean, who knows? Maybe they have a whole store of gold lying around, which really, you know, stabilized all the slave population, all that economy that they'd been using for the past, I don't know, X years. But, you know, here that now that Daenerys is there, there's so much that has to be done. And she looked so defeated. There was a look in her eyes that I hadn't seen in her for a while, except maybe last week's when she admitted, you know, maybe I should hang out east here for a little while. But then here we are with... Uh, all these other people that she has to oversee very, very personally. And she seems very defeated. And she has to do 212 more of the, uh, I don't know, personal advising things. Yeah, this is, this is the scene where Daenerys learns that it is difficult to rule. 
which is not a lesson that Tommen has learned yet, because all Tommen has to do is say, my granddaddy Tywin is going to take over for me now. <laughs> yeah, he... You want to jump over there to uh, King's Landing for this? Uh, well, I think we're about, I'm about done with Daenerys, and the rest of the show does take place in King's Landing. There's just a very short, small council meeting and a fun discussion between Oberyn and Varys. <laughs> I really like the conversations that Varys has in the throne room. With, with Littlefinger out of town, he has to find somebody else to banter with, and Oberyn is a lot of fun. Oberyn's really rising to the occasion in a lot of... Uh, in a lot of- senses because here he is in the small council you know contributing as much as he can then here he is being almost a substitute little finger for Varys and I think he's doing a great job and that was a fantastic scene that uh, they had together I liked that they stuck with Oberyn's characterization when he asked if Varys likes boys there was no judgment in it at all just I assume you like boys that's what everyone says <laughs> no oh, all right yeah apparently in the books that was a lot more vague or is that not or is that not true I don't remember. There's a lot of stuff in the books. There's so much stuff in the books. That's the only reason keeping me from reading them, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> I'm so happy that this is another one of those episodes that spends a solid you know, half of the episode focusing on the Lannisters. Like, uh, you know, the second episode of the season when they uh, killed off Joffrey, here they are, you know, spending all of this time with the trial. And I'm so glad that all of the buildup this season has led to this moment and it finally came to fruition. It was amazing. Well, I really like it when they can just focus on one story for an extended chunk of an episode because people are so spread out across Westeros and across the Narrow Sea now that it's kind of hard for an episode to feel coherent. So when it, they are able to just say, here's one place, here's one set of characters, we're going to see how this plays out. It's more traditional storytelling and I respond to it well. I agree with that. I mean, it felt like a much more cohesive whole to have, you know, the entire rest of the episode take place in this trial. But then it means we don't get any Sansa or Littlefinger or uh, any Arya. You know, they have to lose a lot of other plots to get involved <laughs> with this in such a deep way. It works for this episode, but then, you know, it's such a strange episode structurally. We can talk about that in a minute. But what did you think of the trial itself? Uh, I thought Peter Dinklage did some great glowering. <laughs> he had to play a lot of emotions without speaking, from anger to disgust to resignation to absolute fury, and I thought he nailed all of them. I do think that all the witnesses have amazing memories, because every time somebody said, here's something Tyrion said to me, they're word-for-word word accurate. I binged this show several times, showing it to several different people over the course of the past few years. And you're right, it is all verbatim. And it's things that, you know, I hadn't thought about in years. But when they said it so accurately, it just all came back. Like, wow, that really did happen. And who knows, maybe, you know, they had some kind of... Uh, this is all planned out from the beginning that they would, you know, stab Tyrion in the back like this. Or maybe this is Tywin grasping at straws trying to get his son, you know, sent to the Night's Watch or executed. But I really think that they did a fantastic job in manipulating the witnesses in a perfect mix of truth and lies that stings just enough because it's true, but they manipulate it so slightly that it's still plausible. Yes. Like, for Sir Marin, 
Marin is shading the truth a little bit, but you can certainly see why he would do that because Tyrion was so cruel to him. On the other and uh, Grandmeister Pycelle as well, Tyrion was vicious to him, so now Pycelle sees a chance to be vicious back to Tyrion. Although I personally think that him calling Joffrey the most noble child the gods ever put on this good earth <laughs> should by itself disqualify any of the rest of his testimony. I don't think there were very many, you know, Joffrey supporters in King's Landing, but, you know, enough to, you know, you want to put the guy that killed him on trial, right? There's still people that hate him, and I feel like, you know, that's not the right thing to say at this kind of thing, because you have to admit, nobody liked Joffrey. Yeah, you'd think that if Tyrion were really interested in mounting a defense, he would do things like bring on witnesses for what actually happened at Blackwater, because after everybody was saying about how Joffrey insisted on being on the front lines, plenty of people saw him run away, and plenty of people saw Tyrion rally the troops. Well, when it came to this trial, it's all about the influence you have, and it's the Lannisters that really ran it. They got all the good, uh, they got all the good witnesses. They got all the right people to twist their truth and make it into something that benefits them. You know, as much as it is possible that Tyrion could find someone that was actually at Blackwater to vouch for him, you know, he had no power. There's no way that uh, anyone would vouch for him just because he's kind of doomed at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, he could have tried to just blame Sansa for everything, but apparently he is too honorable a person to do that. And then Shay comes out and just stabs him in the back. I'm really curious as to how that panned out. I hope they at least address it in the next episode, how they got Shay back, how they convinced her to do it. And I can imagine it wasn't that hard because she's furious at him anyway. There's that moment later where she says, I'm just a whore, remember? And he yeah. did say that. That was a perfect, you know, mix of truth and lies, the way that yep. it stung so, you know, perfectly. And calling back to when he was trying to get rid of her in what seemed a bit like a Harry and the Hendersons moment. <laughs> now, I had been unsure whose side Jamie was on, but his deal with Tywin really surprised me that in order to save his brother, he was willing to give up being in the King's Guard, which he thinks pretty highly of, and also leave King's Landing, which means he can't be near Cersei anymore. I realize Cersei has rejected him, but he's putting Tyrion above himself in a couple of different ways. What do you think of that scene? I thought the way that Tywin twisted Jaime's, you know, intentions and offer and, you know, thoughts, the way that he twisted them into something like, okay, fine, you can leave if you want to, but we're still going to send Tyrion over to the Night's Watch to, you know, it's better than execution. It's better to have Tyrion alive than to have him, you know, dead in the eyes of Jamie, which I think is awesome. Yes, he has to give up Cersei. We've seen that hasn't stopped him before, but at least he has his priorities straight. He knows that Tyrion is someone that shouldn't be reckoned with, or at least be respected enough to be able to live out his days in the Night's Watch, which I think is brilliant. Well, I think that solution it would be a win-win for Tywin, because he does get the prospect of actual Lannister children, direct descendants to carry on his line and his name. And also, the Night's Watch could probably use Tyrion. <laughs> Can you imagine him north of the wall with a sword trying to fight off the White Walkers? I don't think they all need to fight. At some point, they're going to have to. There's too many of them up there. Yeah. But it looked to me like Tyrion figured out what was happening. So the reason 
I feel that he was demanding a trial by combat was that he wants to deny Tywin that win-win result. He realized there's no way out of this trial. The best way to hurt Tywin at this point is for Tyrion to die. Because then Jaime will also end the Lannister line. Am I reading too much into this? I mean, that's a very interesting reading. I, The way I see it, Tyrion is at his most furious, his least, you know, pensive in planning. I think that was just rage talking. I think it was brilliant that he demanded trial by combat. I can't wait to see where that goes and who's going to fight for him, if anybody. But I'm really, you know, I couldn't tell if his diatribe at the courtroom and at uh, Tywin was a ruse or not. I couldn't tell if it was just him giving up and saying, okay, fine, I confess, take me away. It became apparent, I don't know, maybe a minute into his rants that it was not true. The way that he said, you know, I wish I had been the monster that killed Joffrey. It was, I think, the best acting Peter Dinklage has done, and, you know, who knows, maybe he'll win an, uh, an Emmy for it. But I feel like he's... God, I can't think of the word. He's not thinking through what he's doing just because he's so furious at uh, Tywin and the court. Every single thing that has come to him is coming out in this courtroom, and I think it's brilliant the way it was written and the way that Peter Dinklage was able to emote everything and have everything be so clear and so heartbreaking. It could be. My reading is that everything he did was calculated and planned, that he realized... They've turned Shay against me. How can I hurt them the most? Trial by combat. Although the last time he tried trial by combat, he actually got out of it. So he might just be... I think trial by combat is a good idea, because as unlikely as it sounds, it's better than trial by judges in this case. It's like grasping at straws. You know, he's going for extra innings, trying to get one last chance to maybe get out of this. Or at least, you know, like you said, bring Tywin down with him. Yeah. And we'll see what happens there next episode. So the title of the episode was The Laws of Gods and Men, which I assume refer to the two courtroom scenes we had, which were Daenerys and Tyrion. Or I guess that's... um. Not parallel construction. Daenerys and Tywin, if you have to list the judge in both cases. They really played up the fact that there are rules to be followed. There are, you know, structures that have to be adhered to. The way that Daenerys wanted to stand by her roots and her intentions and say, yes, I crucified the slave owners. What are you going to do about it? And then there's also, down in King's Landing, the way that, you know, they adhere to those kinds of laws and the way that Jamie and Tyrion are trying to subvert them and at least get away somewhat clean or at least alive. Yes. When Tywin talks about the trial, he's, he at least gives lip service to the idea that he's only here as an impartial judge. When Jamie protests, he says, well, the trial's not over yet. I haven't convicted anybody. That's very true, but at the same time, you know, it's a given that there's no way Tyrion can bounce back from this based on just witnesses alone. So there, I guess there is credence to him at least thinking through a trial by combat, but I feel like a lot of his diatribe was so, you know, mm-hmm. based in fury and his, you know, resentment towards his family and his father and the way that everyone's treated him. So there's his laws and his morals coming out and saying, okay, this is what I think is right. Give me another chance, please. And compared to that, Daenerys' court scene, she's actually putting herself below the law. She could easily say, 
I captured this city, my dragons get to eat all the goats they want. Hmm. Although she is Khaleesi, she is saying, it is not right that you should be deprived of your funeral services. It's not right you should be deprived of your flocks. Even though it was I that did these things, you still get some recompense. I thought it was interesting to see her actually make the distinction between, you know, what she's done to the entire city and what this uh, microcosm of, you know, a single person in the city going through this. It was really interesting seeing her confronted with the small picture. There's a guy whose father was killed in her, you know, takeover or, you know, conquering or whatever. And here he is, you know, trying to deal with it as a person. It's not just a, you know check off the map anymore. It's an actual person trying to deal with the fact that his father is, you know, rotting out in the middle of a city. And he might have been one of the good people. I mean, he had slaves, but he didn't want to crucify them. He protested. Does that make you a good person? (laughs) There's a point where it's, you know, hard to distinguish whether or not you were doing these things consciously or if you're a product of your environment. You know, if you're a product of your environment, you're not going to know what's right and what isn't. And then here she is, you know, trying to deal with the fact that it's not right, but what do you do about someone who doesn't know better? I don't know. I've never taken over a giant uh, kingdom, so I don't need to have an answer to that. (laughs) Well, we'll see what Daenerys' answer to that is next week, hopefully, when we check back in with her five minutes. And next week, the episode title is Mockingbird. Aren't they splitting that into two and releasing it into two parts, or is that something different? Uh, according to the episode guide I'm looking at, it's just Mockingbird, then a week off, and then more episodes. Oh, Mocking Jay is what I'm thinking of. Sorry. Ah, I see what you did. And we'll end it there? Yes. Thanks for listening.